This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Computer, this is Data. I'm an android. I'm a basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Lakers Exceptionalism stream live here on Twitch. My name is Tom Z. Joining me, as always, is Tim, a.k.a. Cranjus McBasketball. Tim, how you doing, man? Another overtime game against the Thunder, but we pulled it off. Hooray! As as LeBron said post-game a couple days ago, <laughs> I am tired. <laughs> and not being on the Pacific Coast, like not being uh, PST, these overtime games are killing my uh, my sleep schedule. So let's hope for tonight's game against Memphis to be, you know, a nice quick four-quarter sort of game. Shouts to everybody already in the chat. We love you guys. Appreciate you. If you haven't followed us on twitch yet we will be releasing this as a pod as well so mostly a pod but we are streaming so come catch us subscribe to lakers exceptionalism pod on twitch so tim today like i said we are going to be diving into a lakers exceptionalism mailbag so let's get right in my friend johnny from patreon thoughts on tht's development this season both i test and number stuff on both sides of the ball and how you'd want to see him being used in the second half of the season so on that note, Tim, just quick kind of what caught my eye looking at his cleaning the glass data. He's actually fourth in the Lakers in usage, which is a little surprising. I, I don't know who I expected it to be, but he's even above like Kyle Kuzma. He's 55.4% on two point shots. Uh, and that's just amazing. You know, that's him getting to the bucket. He'll pull up from mid range every once in a while. But his three-point percentage is just 30.6%. And he's really struggling to really like hurt the defense, you know, stretching the, the floor. And teams are starting to sag off of him. So that's kind of my takeaway. But what, what are you seeing over there? Yeah, he's the development this year, watching him from what he was in game one until now has been it's been exciting. And and he hasn't fixed everything that he's not good at, but we've seen him tangibly get better with his outlet passes, with his spot up reads. I think running things in transition as a scorer and playmaker, he's he's improved and he's making those simple reads a bit better. Uh, we're seeing him grow just a ton off ball in terms of making the right rotations. Like he's he's been a good on ball guy and he'll make those wow plays defensively. Those seem to come at a higher rate now than a, a little bit before, but he's always been a good like deflections and on ball steal sort of player. It's the off ball stuff that there's a big difference going from drop coverage, you know, defense doesn't matter all that much in the G League to like, hey, you need to do your job just on those normal mundane 
plays that we're going to have a bunch of every game. So he's gotten much better at those. Still not fantastic, but he's become fairly reliable making, you know, the tag or rotating down to help the the tag man, those sorts of things. Offensively, I think we've seen him get a little bit better at putting guys in jail in some of those other pick and roll techniques and patience. And as a pick and roll scorer, he's been pretty good this year. Uh, that's been his one half court play type where he's been above average. And you talk about his finishing. That's something he came in good at. And we've seen him it, like it's legit. He's good at it. It's all with his right hand, and there's a question later that we'll get into about that, but he's been very good slashing in transition, finishing at the rim. The numbers reflect that, and uh, actually recently we've seen him use more as a pick-and-roll player than as a spot-up player, and because of that, his offensive archetype on B-Ball Index has changed to being a slasher, not a secondary ball handler. So he's trying to get to the rim. You talked about that. Some concerning parts of his game are that, like, Overall, in the in transition, he's been good. In the half court, he's been very inefficient. Uh, I talked about his ball screens. He's been a good, like not great, but a good pick and roll ball handler scorer. When you include his passing, which is really where the value comes from as a pick and roll player, unless you're an elite scorer, it's about collapsing the defense and then finding the open guys. He's collapsing the defense, but then not finding the open guys and kind of forcing it at the rim a bit, which lowers mm-hmm. his individual scoring efficiency. It's still good. But then when you count the fact that he's not passing out to dudes, his overall pick and roll efficiency is only 118th of 133 guys, including passes that have done that many this season. His half court efficiency overall is 198th of 204 guys with as many possessions as him, which is like really, really, really bad. Uh, He he's like a one pitch pitcher right now. He's shooting three for 19 on pull ups. He's shooting two for 12 on floaters. His catch and shoot efficiency is 259th of 267 players that have shot as many as him this year. His So like as a spot-up player overall, he has not been good. So it's been when he has the ball in his hands, he's been good. When he's cutting off ball, he's been good. But as a floor spacer, from an effectiveness standpoint, it's not been there. And defenses are starting to catch up on that and sag off of him a bit. Overall, he's we've seen what he can do. We've seen what he can't do. And some of that is also the, the, the pass-out tendencies. Um, Mm -hmm. in pick and roll passing in general, his pass out rate is only higher of like 150 dudes, only higher than Jordan Clarkson, Anthony Edwards, and Terrence Ross. Um, so he's, he's, he's running ball screens to score and his ISO pass out rate is the lowest of any player in the league. Um, and in ISO, he's two for 11 with two turnovers. That's another example of like against a set defense with a dude in front of you, he can beat him. But that player knows they don't have to respect his middle game. He's not shooting floaters. He's not hitting the pull-ups. And then the other off-ball defenders know he's not going to pass out. So once some things click for him, we're going to see that efficiency rise. But right now, overall, his impact and his efficiency isn't where you'd like it to be while he still displays some really good high-end finishing talent. His overall offensive impact right now is 24th percentile as a shooting guard. So... There's plenty of room for growth. We've seen some tangible growth over time. I think we'll continue to see more. And once he he makes some strides here or there, we'll see things kind of click into place. Um, and and the fact that he's such a good finisher be able to help other areas of his game. Uh, but right now, it's I don't know. It's kind of like what we talked about at the beginning of the year. He's going to make some great plays. Defensively, he's been good. Offensively, when he's doing what he's good at, he's good at it. But for this team, he's being asked to do a lot of things that aren't ideal for him. And it makes it tough to have him on the court off ball when defenses don't respect him. 
So help me make heads or tails of this too, Tim. Uh, he's two for 11 in the corners this year and nine for 24 on non-corner threes. That's 38% to 18% in the corners. And and that's really, you know, a product of him kind of like being on the court with LeBron and not being on the ball, basically, like you described. I do also think there are some situations where THT has been the guy to uh, pull the trigger on some of the grenades he gets, you know, late shot clock, you know, situations kind of always what I've heard referred to as grenades. Somebody's got to, to fall on it and take a, a bad shot that, you know, like Rajon Rondo is the king of lobbing grenades because he'll dribble the air out of the ball for 15 seconds. Picks and you have really advantage and you have to to do something mm-hmm. with it. Um, I'm not like excusing away his poor decision-making at times. Um, I think it's just interesting to consider this is a 20 year old on a defending champion with the fourth highest usage on the team. Uh, and, and that's just gone up, you know, since the year started. Yeah. Uh, pulling up some of the data on those grenade shots. So synergy has shots taken with under four seconds left. He's taken 23 of those. Uh, or th- 23 total, including he has like a, a couple turnovers, got to the free throw line. He shot four for 20 on those. So that's those are tough shots. That's going to lower your efficiency. He is, let's see, sixth on the team in those under four seconds left on the shot clock sorts of shots. Wow. So it's that's great. It, 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 it hasn't that. been crazy high. LeBron has 122. Um, yeah. So it hasn't been crazy high, but he has not converted on those. And a lot of them, I think, have been like very low expected efficiency sorts of shots. And when you have 23 of those out of like 150 total half court possessions, that's going to lower your efficiency, maybe just a little bit. Uh, and he's doing well in transition. You know, he's 89th percentile mm-hmm. per synergy. Um, he can get out and yeah, once he's able to get a lane and, and rise up, he's, he's hard to contest at the rim. And even though he doesn't have a left hand, his right hand is better than most people's, you know, both hands. And he's really incredible the way he can manipulate defenses just by being able to reach on the other side of the rim so easily. Uh, and you know, mm-hmm. 60, 61st percentile, uh, per synergy, pick and roll ball handler. That's pretty good. You know, if only 42 possessions, 39 points. So he's, he's doing some stuff. He's learning along the way. And that's why I keep, I don't think he's going to be out of the rotation again, the way he was to start the season. So that's a good, great question. Uh, moving on to is this Deepak and I'm disgusted. Ask about LA shot quality. Over the last 15 games, LA has had the 18th ranked offensive efficiency. And is this uh, from the dip in shot quality or is it the shot making? So what do you think about that, Tim? That's a good question. I think having a couple guys out for some specific games has certainly not not helped the Lakers. I think by at the beginning of the season, we had just about everybody healthy for the most part. And we've had a guard or two out here or there. But having AD out recently, having Caruso out, that that hurts. In with regards to shot quality from the public data, what we can do is look at uh, there's a great site called play by play stats. It's pbpstats.com. And they will look at all the shots that a team takes based on shot location, not not the shooter, though, but they'll look at shots based on shot location. Uh, they don't look at if it's stationary or moving or off the dribble or catch and shoot or how closely guarded it is. So it's a fairly simple, um, but it's at least a benchmark for shot quality. 
and and from that they'll give you the team's expected effective field goal percentage. LA's has dipped a bit since since January 1st or since those those last 15 games, but overall big picture, their expected effective field goal percentage has been uh 53% before January 1st. Since January 1st, it's been 53%, and over the past 15 <laughs> games, it's been 53%. So it hasn't been a huge difference. Again, I don't know how that would line up with like the second spectrum data. That would be a little bit more complex. Uh, I personally am not pleased with how the offense is being run in the half court. And there are a bunch of different things the Lakers can do to try to, you know, give it a little bit of a facelift here and there. So I think shot quality in general isn't where I'd love it to be, but I do think the shot making itself recently has certainly dipped. Like KCP is going through a pretty rough stretch and he's, you know, one of our biggest three point shooters that is going to impact things with AD out. That is going to hurt the team's ability to score offensively. Alex Caruso, he's not like a score offensively, but he's been a positive impact offensive player. So missing him, missing AD, having KCP go through a rough stretch, all of those things together really hurt this offense overall. And especially with AD being out and not not being that post scorer, when we see Trez or when we see Gasol attacking in the post, LA's not doing the same sorts of things to counter help as they are when LeBron or AD are being those post scorers. So we've shifted to different players and a worse style of post offense with AD out over recent games. So when he gets back, I think that'll improve. There are other things we can talk about in a little bit, but that's what I'm seeing. I think the shot making itself has certainly gone down. Shot quality hasn't been great, still isn't great, uh, but I do think has moved down just a little bit. I think that's, yeah, exactly what I'm saying. It's a lot of the classic regression, you know, KCP and Alex Caruso, as much as we love them, are not going to shoot 55% from three. And what's crazy, Tim, I was talking to uh, Brian at Run the Jewels on Twitter about this. Uh, KCP feels like he hasn't made a three in like a week and a half, and his percentage is 43.8% right now per clean the glass. <laughs> on the, on so the season, right? Overall? On the season. On the Jeez. season overall. And, so what did and he start the year off with? Like 60% he was he was at like fifty five percent, you know, like two wow. weeks ago, and we were talking about him and Caruso and the top four, both of them, and that's just screams regression, you know. And they're mm-hmm. they're still probably gonna end the season better than they did last year. It looks like or on pace to, but you know, Vogel also mentioned that KCP is getting a lot more attention, and uh, as much as you hate that little play that often gets him a mid-range shot, I like that play because it does get him involved. Even if it's in this scripted way, he he gets into the game and he's a kind of guy that you need to keep involved. He's going to stay engaged defensively, but offensively you have to you have to bring him in sometimes, you, you know, because he's not going to force up shots on, on this LeBron team. Uh, so I think some of it's like he's getting paid more attention because he was shooting hot, right? Yeah. And a a lot of his offense is coming from just being a spot up score. He's not creating his own stuff a lot of times unless LA's calling a set play. And this year they haven't called too many like off screen sorts of sets for him. It's been that like handoff set that we've seen or nothing really at all. So when a lot of your offense comes from other players on the team's ability to break down the defense and then – collapse it and then see you open and then kick it out to you 
that's I think there's some more variance there in terms of how much volume you're able to get. And then when you're taking a lot of threes, there's even extra variance in terms of, you know, that your percentages and your scoring. And like by the end of the season, he might shoot 40 percent on threes. But over that time, he will have stretches of games where he shoots 50 percent or shoots 30 percent. And this is just one of those downturns. And as much as I hate that one play that we keep seeing, you make a good point that it gets him a little bit more involved. And uh, maybe I'd. I don't have any evidence for or against it, but I have often heard, you know, get guys a free throw or get them a shot at the rim or something. And then, you know, they get more in a rhythm with some of those. So some of those shots further out. And that's similar to like how I would warm up if I'm getting ready for like an adult league basketball game. I'm taking shots at the rim first and then slowly backing up. And like you want to kind of like calibrate everything first and then work on those outside shots. Whereas KCP just has to come in the game and just shoot threes. And there are plenty of players who do that. But uh, yeah, that, that's that's an interesting, interesting perspective that I think could have some merit. Definitely, partly you know, just regression. I, I I also think the Lakers have just not played particularly well in the last week and a half, and and they're coming back down to earth in a lot of those areas. But the defense, you know, they still at least has has some consistency to it. So I'm not too worried. We did mention last pod. This is kind of like the doldrums of the season. It seems so. Moving on, uh, we have one from Luke Lebsack. Uh, Can THT sustain his ability to finish at the rim without using his left arm? Are there other players who have done that? Honestly, Tim, I can't think of of somebody off the top of my head. I mean, there's famous players like Lamar Odom didn't have a right hand. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, Julius Randle doesn't really have a right hand still. I don't know. Lamar, Lamar could use the right sometimes as he got. As he got older, but he was notoriously going left as, you know, no matter what it takes. So is there anybody you can think of uh, that fits that bill? Not that fits that bill in today's game that is performing at a high level as a finisher at the rim. And we see like THT almost has this like super advanced like layup package, not because he just has every move down, but because he has to overcome the fact that he won't shoot uh with his left hand. And so I actually spent time today looking through every single shot that THT has taken at the rim this season. Guess how many he used his left hand for. Honestly, I'm going to say zero. You're right. Zero. Literally (laughs) none. Zero. Like, like I was looking for, I was like, he's going to shoot at least one. Like there's going to be something, but like whether it would have been wide open, easy, there's no one around him. Or it's a super tough one. He's coming from the left side, right side. Doesn't matter. He's always shooting with that right hand, which is bonkers to me. That's crazy. (laughs) And for the most part, because he's a little bit more advanced with those layup packages, he has found the right workarounds for this. And he has that reverse layup he often uses where he'll be driving from the right side of the court around the baseline and then he'll he'll kind of finish on the left side of the rim with his right hand. And it, it, it works pretty well. And he's his length helps that work. Um, he avoids a lot of shots being blocked. When he gets bumped, that's when he runs into trouble, whether it's a foul or not a foul. He struggles to finish when he's going through some contact on that because he has to flip his entire torso on those and like completely change the direction of his body while he's jumping forward. He's turning and he's getting bumped. He has That hasn't worked out so well for him. When he's driving from the left side of the court, I'm sorry, from the right side of the court to the left side of the court, kind of like above the rim, like not not along the baseline, but a little bit higher up on the court, maybe a step or two towards half court from the rim. That's when he runs into a little bit more trouble because 
he's tried to do that same reverse shot and like it's just looked really bad um or he'll drive and he'll just have to stop collect his momentum and then try to finish with his right hand so there are ways in which this is limiting him that he hasn't been able to overcome with some of those reverse layups that he has but he's still been pretty good. It hasn't seemed to matter all that much, but I counted, I think there were like 70 or 80 shots I looked at and there were nine that I counted where I was like, yeah, this, if, if he could use his left hand, it would have been much more helpful here. He didn't miss yeah. all nine of those shots, but a lot of them he did miss and it was very related to the fact that he's only using one hand. So like he's been very I good. I just want, Tim, I want Phil Handy to walk over to THT and be like, look, bro, your left hand is as long as your right hand. <laughs> <laughs> like these yeah. are the same dog these are the same you see he picks one up. i i can just see the phil handy moment where he's like bruh <laughs> but i i mean i get it like i having played like i was certainly much better finishing layups at the rim with my right hand or when i was posting up shooting hook shots i was so much better with my left hand but even then i was still using the other one when it was like the easy open shot i wasn't like trying to force like he does not use that hand at all. It's crazy. Like I've never seen anything like it. Even like a lot of other guys that are primarily one hand, you'll still see them use the other one on like open layups. THT just won't. And that's, that's nuts to me. And it would be wild if he continues to shoot as well as he does at the rim, given the fact that we see this large sample size of like, Hey, he won't do this. <laughs> Try to make him do this <laughs> or take away the like move. He always goes to when he's driving from this position. So I mean, credit to him. I want to see him keep performing well, but I would not be surprised if he dips a little bit over the course of this year. The more teams have a, a better scouting report on him, and as long as he isn't taking some of those easy left-handed layups and forcing up the right hand instead. So you want to hear a cra- another crazy stat? I also think this kid is is not getting the benefit of the doubt on some calls right now that could help him in the future, and and maybe he can help sell it a little bit, but this is crazy to me. He So he's in the 100th percentile of percentage of his shot attempts at the rim, 54%. He has 121 shot attempts and three fouls drawn. Really? Per cleaning the glass is what they're telling me. That cannot be correct. There's no way. There's no way. He has, he's gone to the free throw line 7.4% of his 176 possessions. That's more than three times. There's that, that numbers. And getting to the rim. And getting, okay. Well, maybe not. Oh yeah, you're right. So uh, let's see, 3.1% of his, so what is that? No, I, I think I'd still have him around. No, actually, yeah, you're right. Holy crap. I'm doing mental math over here. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> and I have seen there were times on film that I saw him get bumped and nothing was called. And yeah. I think part of it, too, is when he's finishing in such unconventional ways or just in general, when a player's driving yeah. to the rim and they look out of control, they often don't get the benefit of the doubt on the whistle. And he's under control, but the, it looks funky because he's doing strange things that players don't normally do. And then at other times he is out of control because he's trying to force it with his right hand. And I think that might count against him a little bit. And then maybe the rest of it is some variance in the fact that he's a rookie. Uh, But that's a good call out. I had not really noticed that. But on film, there were a couple times he was very clearly pissed and teammates were pissed. And then the other team would get a layup in transition because we wouldn't run run back on defense. (laughs) Right. The same thing happens with guys like Kyrie actually doesn't have a very high free throw rate, like compared to a lot of guys who get to the rim like him because he's able to go around dudes like so, so much easier. So cool. 
Good, another good question there. Uh, so much to unpack, but I just kind of want to keep this moving on. We got Brandon Liams. Uh, how have our ball handlers done in terms of playmaking? Any sub- surprises compared to last year? Yeah. So the way that so Rondo being out dropped some of the playmaking we have. Having Schroeder come in supplements what LA has over the rest of the ro- roster a little bit. He's had a good connection with AD. His pick and roll ball handling him and LeBron both I think and I I need to go look at the numbers on this but it seems like this year we haven't had as many like open skip passes um I I want to check the numbers on that I also want to want to get our basketball index playmaking data up and running and see what see what that looks like but we talked about THT's passing earlier it's been non-existent for the most part, but it does seem like he's getting better over time. So like by the end of this year, the the full season data might not look so good, but his like current form may be better than where it is right now. And I'm okay with that. Like we talked about the low practice time this year. This is a year more than any other where getting extra reps in during the game, those will be more important than in the past because you don't have that practice time. Uh, LeBron's playmaking, I think has been fine. Uh, I think him with uh, Gasol, especially when when he has that pop man and it can make things a little bit more difficult for the defense and he attacks downhill. I like that more than those inverted ball screens where he's dribbling more side to side than trying to attack downhill. Um, we'll have to come back to this one. I'd love to see what the data says, because from an eye test standpoint, I think the talent's still there with LeBron. I think Schroeder's kind of who we expected him to be. He doesn't have that lob man that he likes to have in, in ball screens. Um mm. But when we have run empty side ball screens with him and AD, he's he's hit AD on the lob just about every time it's there. So he, he misses some pop reads. Uh, Caruso is still kind of limited in terms of his ball screen reads. THT we know is limited. LeBron's able to make them all. It's just kind of the, the style of ball screen you run with LeBron that'll dictate what sorts of passes will be open for him. I also think, you know, with guy like Marcus Saul, it just comes from a different place now. Your your playmaking, Anthony Davis's assist percentage is up. You know, LeBron and AD's overall usage is like slightly down. So it's just coming in kind of different ways this year. I, I still haven't seen a ton of it from Trez. I know we do talk about it a little bit here and there. But, you know, like I kind of thought, once the ball gets in there, it kind of goes through a black hole. But there's some nice plays. He made a nice uh, play the other night, I forget who it was passing to a cutter and, and they got a bucket out of it. So it just comes in a little bit different ways this year than Rondo kind of setting the entire table. And, um, Schroeder is, you know, he's mostly looking for his own shot. So he, he's not always the Johnny on the spot with moving the ball to another guy to let them get the advantage. Not saying he's a ball hog, but he's just more focused on attacking himself than setting other guys up the way a guy like Rondo was. Yeah, I think that's the case. And good call out on Trez too. He's and like, he'll make some good passing plays, but from like a tendency standpoint, he's, he's mostly trying to score and Given that, along with the fact that LA doesn't seem to be as organized when he's posting up in terms of countering help, we've just seen a pretty low number of post pass outs leading to things from Trez. And to yeah. his credit, he's been good as a scorer, and we've called that out a couple times. And over this past stretch, he's been very good offensively. He's been a good source of points. He's shot pretty well. He's been active on the offensive rebound. So credit to him over this recent stretch. But one of his weak areas is that passing, whether it's in the post or, or on the perimeter. All right, moving on from Chuck Shu, I think it is. 
Zoo. Uh, why does the offense suck of late? Why does the team go through these six plus minutes scoreless spells so often? That is a great question. Uh, I We've talked a lot, Tim, about how the Lakers just don't really run sets. They run a couple of plays here and there, but it's mostly kind of read and react improvisation plays. And that's the way they like to do it. Get the ball to LeBron and AD, make defenses react to that, and then, uh, you know, go off accordingly. And AD has been out of late, and that is a huge hub of your offense. You, you can dump 20 possessions, at least 20% of your possessions into this guy and just kind of call it a day, right? And he's so good posting up and getting even better, I think, than he was last year, right? Like post-ISO scoring. So that that hurts, but the shooting regression hurts, right? So there's a lot of factors, Tim. I, I'm curious what you think is the, the most pro- prominent or, or how they combine together to give us this sucky offensive late. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a combination of things. AD out is big because not just he's a good scorer, but he this year has taken a, a good jump in terms of being a offensive engine for others through his post passing because he's been so good in the post defenses need to double more than they did before. And he's making a lot of those right reads. It's, it's a little hit or miss sometimes, but he's getting better at that. And and we've seen that be really beneficial for the offense. And like you said, the team doesn't run many set plays. It's a lot of single action sets or like, we're going to run a pick and roll. And if nothing happens, somebody's going to ISO or we're going to post up and either they score or they pass to somebody cutting or something, or if not, we'll kick it out and reset and somebody will ISO. There's no like run a play. All right, it didn't work. Let's run another play or flow into another action. It can, there's more the team can do to improve that, but just from an organization standpoint, we're not running out the the best offensive scheme. We have some pretty good talent. And right now the talent is KCP's on a cold streak, AD's out, Caruso's out. So that hurts. Gasol hasn't been used as a facilitator nearly as much as he could be. Uh, I I tried to find his like facilitation and there haven't been like any split cuts for him this year, either from the high post or the low post or the perimeter. That was his bread and butter in Toronto. They got shots at the rim. They got open threes all day long with those. We haven't seen any of that with the Lakers. So a new guy coming in, what I, what good coaches often do will be like, Hey, what from his former team, how from his former team should we, what, what should we try to steal? What should we take? What was he good at? How, where, in which situations did he succeed in that other situation? What can we take from there and implement in our own? And that's a, that one factor with him has been a big glaring missing piece. So there's potential there, but it hasn't quite been realized. Um, and then uh, the other thing is, so Kuzma has been really active cutting for offensive rebounds and cutting on drives and, and getting those dump off passes. I also see the downside of that at times where it's kind of killing spacing um, where like someone, let's say THT drives to the rim or LeBron drives to the rim. LeBron's there. His defender's there. We've, we often have somebody in the dunker spot. They're there. Their defender's there. So that's four players. And then Kuz is cutting and his defender's cutting with him. So there are six players like at the rim. Uh, and it makes it really difficult to pass out or, or get those catch and shoot threes or attack a closeout. Cause even if you do kick it out to one of the other two players, there are six players in the paint, <laughs> so it's, they can't drive. Um, so you either have to force a shot up or try to reset. Um, a lot of times when this is happening, Kuz is cutting from the weak side. So if I'm driving from the left wing, 
Kuz is cutting from the right corner. The only players that we still have on the perimeter are like a guy in the the strong side left corner who is, you know, right there, but he's on my backside as I'm driving. And then maybe a big man at like the top of the key or something. So it's been, I don't know, a little bit funky in that regard. I, where he's making buckets out of it and he's getting offensive rebounds, but it does come out of a cost of spacing when you're playing that four out one in basketball and already have another guy there and a third player. That's the one driving. So that is something that I noticed today that I hadn't really thought about previously uh, that could also help contribute to, to why Kuz's offensive impact has been not as good as we would have expected it to be so far this year. All right, moving next to Brandon V. How successful are actions that begin with Marc Gasol at the top of the key, and how often are they run? Tim, you kind of mentioned there a little bit, but Marc Gasol right now at the 11.8 assist percentage, he's, you know, 11.1% usage. So that's like... He's mostly passing, right? He's only passing when he's uh-huh. he's taking these shots, really, which is kind of funny uh, to me. But it seems like they're not doing it like you just mentioned, like the split cuts aren't aren't happening the way they were in Toronto. Yeah, this was a go watch all of his assists on film it, rather than like go find a specific number sort of thing to see that specific type of playmaking because there's data on pick and roll pass outs. There's data on post up pass outs, but there isn't data on like Marcus all stand at the top of the key while guys are cutting or screening. So looked at the film, like we've mentioned, there there aren't those. There's no action involving screens that he's passing to. It's very much he'll get the ball and then somebody will try to back cut. We see more of it when the Lakers play with Casal at the five and then either Kuzma or LeBron at the four, and we don't see AD out there or Trez out there. More that five out offense with Casal at the top of the key has led to more facilitating for him. But overall, the volume's been pretty low. It's been successful when they've done it, even though they haven't really used that more evolved form of it involving screening action. So I'd love to see more of what we're doing currently. I'd love to see more of it take that step up as well and involve some of that screening. But overall, it's it's been good. We just haven't used it. I mean, I will note that, you know, like most of the Lakers really good lineups still have Marcus all in them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he just helps the offense maintain that advantage and he's not shooting the ball particularly well. So those bigs are, you know, a little bit more forgiving if they want to sag beneath and, and clog up those passing lanes a little bit. Cause he's only shooting 31% from three um, yep. and he's doing really well from the corners, but but not from above yeah, the break. That's that's a good call out as well. Yeah, and those are the ones that he's going to be getting, and and those are the ones that uh, will correlate with with his playmaking as well. Like he's not playmaking from the corner, so him not shooting well at the top of the key, and you being able to sag off of him a little bit more means that he's going to have, you know, uh, like a dude standing trying to t- take away cutters as he may be facilitating. So that's not a good sign. All right, Jim Caldwell, former. Indianapolis Colts head coach (laughs) just kidding asks any actions we're not seeing often that you'd expect to show up in the playoffs and I think I think Tim I'm just going to clear out this lane for you to go to go off my king (laughs) (laughs) all right so I I'll start off by saying this I don't know what to expect in the playoffs I Vogel has shown that they'll do certain things defensively they'll be really smart with adjustments offensively 
in the past, we haven't seen his teams go from very vanilla to like suddenly being really creative. So I don't know what to expect. I don't have the highest of hopes, but I can tell you what we're not doing. And we might see some of those moving forward. So Gasol playmaking, that, that's more of something we could see. And that involves, you know, more five out spacing, more getting him the ball at the top of the key, more handoff reads, more guys back cutting, more split cut actions, that sort of thing. We haven't seen many split cuts when like AD or LeBron are in the low post. And let's think about when help is coming from the guy right in front of them, that that high side dig, the player that they're leaving alone then could sprint over, set a flare or set, set a little perimeter screen action for the next guard over. And it's two offensive players against one defensive player that might get you an open three. And then that player after setting the screen would cut. So that is something we haven't seen that would work just in general would work especially well, given the type of help LA's often seeing in the post. We haven't seen much in terms of back screens, UCLA cuts, flex cuts, uh, rip screens, which are a kind of back screen. Um, we see a lot of cross screens where like guys are going like three or four total steps and it's not the type of screening to get guys towards the basket that I would be using uh, with, with the personnel that we have. I would love to see more one, four high, meaning ball handler is at the top of the key. And then you have two players at the elbows, two players at the wings, and then also horn setups where same thing, but the two players at the wings are dropped down to the corners. Those sorts of alignment play well into the fact that Gasol and LeBron are two of our best passers. And we have plenty of guys on this team that can catch and shoot some open threes and can attack off of handoffs and can cut really well, depending on who they are. So a lot of that would help put players in better positions to succeed while also clearing the pain out a little bit more for cuts and drives, play into our passing um, and, and get more of those cutting actions towards the rim. If you are trying to pass to somebody cutting to the rim and you're at the top of the key, that's a harder pass than if you make an entry pass to the elbow and then you go set that screen. And then the player that's passing to the cutters is from the elbow instead of like outside the three point line. So that's something we could do. We haven't seen any double high ball screens. I mean, not any. I'm sure we've seen some, but we have not seen many double high ball screens. That's an action that helps clear out the paint. Allow It would allow for LeBron to get into the paint a little bit more on drives. It would open up roles much better because both big man defenders would be pulled up towards the level of the screen. Um, so that's something that would be really valuable. We haven't seen many step up ball screens in the middle of the court instead of along the sideline. I, we need more of that, man. Like, why, yeah. if you're getting a guy a full head of steam, would you that. make his head of steam be going towards the corner? Do it in the middle of the court. Give that player options to go left or right and attack the paint downhill in secondary breaks. So there's more. I don't know what the Lakers will use. They're probably not going to use most of this, but there are plenty of options available. There's a lot LA can do with the personnel that they have. I don't think we're going to just start seeing stuff in the playoffs we haven't seen before. Odds are, if they start realizing they need to add more, we're going to see them try it out now or soon or when, whenever in the regular season. And then by the playoffs, they will try to cut out more of the fat in terms of their attacks rather than just start experimenting with new things that they haven't really gotten a chance to use in the regular season. Yeah, I think they're just trying to feel it out right now and not really focus on any like specific uh, offense, right? They're just kind of coasting through, see what works, see what lineups uh, can get good shots. You know, you're still like, you know, 20 plus games into the season and, and figuring out 
you're you're still collecting data at this point, I would say, as your philosophy of of piecing together lineups. And Tim, there's just quickly, I wanted to bring this up. There's one other lineup that data is. Cons- We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Considerably negative comparison. And it's our two, three, four, fifth most used lineup. And that lineup of meh is still the second most used lineup. But this one is negative 12.1. It's Trez, AD, Kuzma, Wes, and Schroeder. I, I, does anything in that stand out to you? I, I don't know. I have to pay attention to that. I just, uh, there's a preemptive eye looking toward that lineup. Um, but I think you laid out all, a lot of great options on offense that I, I totally agree with. So, so well done there. Let's take a quick break, Tim, and then we will come back and finish out our mailbag. All right, Tim, coming back from our break. We're going to kick it off with some defense questions from Jason Timpf. If the catch hedge relies on back end rotations to work, then why not just fully trap the ball handler? Traps would lead to the same chaos rotating off ball, but raises turnover chances and forces slower passes to give your defense a head start on rotations. I feel like many of these catch hedges leave Gasol and Trez in a spot where they aren't contributing much. They're not far enough back to stop anything, but not far enough up to disrupt the ball handler. I agreed that it deters the drive, but so would the trap, theoretically. So, Tim, I it was looking into this on Synergy, watching some of these possessions that Synergy labels, quote-unquote, traps in the pick-and-roll ball handler, right, during trapping situations. And for L.A., what I, what I found was, like, 18 possessions overall. Claiming, you know, through Synergy, it's not always the perfect, you know, earmarking, process they have there but take it as you will most of those possessions were not intentional traps but a result of a couple of different reasons some of them were what we see when you get like Mark Gasol switched onto a Trey Young after he dribbles through the baseline out to the other end and then Schroeder's you know goes to quickly double uh, to allow you know the big to kind of retreat and and match up on his guy right so there's a couple of those there's a couple of just the ball handler uh picking up their picking up the ball to not even give them a chance to quote-unquote catch hedge and take advantage of a four-on-three that they have a passing lane to get the ball into and then a couple of them are just straight up that the ball handler strings it out and you know two guys follow the same guy instead of somebody peeling off fast enough and them putting that pressure on it. 
Overall, the Lakers aren't terrible in what they do. They give up 0.889 in those 18 possessions for 16 points. But Tim, to me, trapping a ball handler is not something you do unless there's a player who is performing so outrageously efficient or killing you in so, such a, you know, this guy is should not be allowed to shoot. I would ra- rather the other four offensive players on his team have a four on three advantage and get a shot that way versus, you know, this guy blowing me up the way he is. Uh, that's my take on the trap philosophy on defense, Tim. But I'm very curious what you think about this, too. Yeah, so we can start by thinking of a couple times from last playoffs where we saw this play out a bit. So in the Denver series, the Lakers were catch hedging. And when Jamal Murray was stringing those hedges out, there was one game, I think it was it was either game two or game three. Murray was stringing those out. And instead of switching, the Lakers continued to follow him with two players and right. gave up a four on three for the other players on the court. And then he'd make that pass. And because he strung that out so far, it was a much more prolonged four on three compared to what you're normally giving up in a catch situation. In a catch situation, if everybody's doing their jobs, the role shouldn't be open. The ball handler should not be able to drive to the rim. They're not getting pull-up threes. If they're taking a pull-up two, it's contested. Pull-up three, it's contested. It's giving up, like, if everyone does their job, there's a skip pass, and everyone already knows their rotations, and then they recover to it, and you're in good shape. There are ways the defense or the offense can try to do specific things and create different types of shots, but we've seen the Lakers be better at countering those and they're executing better. They're, they're doing what they should be doing. And this type of coverage is a, you're trying to contain that ball handler. It's not try to generate a ton of turnovers, but it still generates a good number of turnovers. And the difference in turnover rate when looking at some second spectrum data I was able to get from a source between catch edging and blitzing is pretty comparable. It's, it was like 13% versus 10%. So it's not it's not like, oh man, 50% of blitzes end up with, with runouts and, and highlight dunks on the other end. There's a little bit of a difference there. The big difference is when you're blitzing, you are giving up that prolonged four on three. And we saw that against mm-hmm. Houston last year in the playoffs and they just were baffled by having a power play and couldn't figure out how to attack it. And I I did a whole write-up. If you're curious, go on B-Ball Index and look at it. I did a whole write-up on like five or six really, really simple things Houston could have done with the personnel that they had to attack in a four-on-three situation. There's plenty you can do to counter. And uh, it's, it's, I don't know. I saw that tweet recently. Someone was saying like, the, the hardest thing about chess is the other players always doing some shit. And this is kind of like that. In theory, if you're going to go double team and they turn it over, that's great. Or you double team, they kick it out. And he mentions that it might be a longer pass or a tougher pass. If you're able to really get in their face, then sure. But if you're predictable in that you're, they know you're going to be double teaming, that's when the tables turn a bit. And the offense, unless they're really, really bad at attacking with one fewer defender than offensive player, they're they're able to generate consistent advantages. And that is why we do not see NBA teams double teaming much. It's like less than 10% of the time on ball screens for 95% plus of teams. We saw Chicago use it a little bit more like 
2017-18, and then I think last year we've seen the Thunder do it a couple times in the like 2013-2014, 2014-2015 seasons. Um, I'm trying to think of who else may have done it. But looking at those teams and their success rates, they generally did pretty good at containing the ball handler, but then it was the pass outs from that where teams were killing them because it was four on three situations. So it can be very hit or miss. It is a high risk reward thing, which is why you see it like you described in those situations where you're at a huge disadvantage with the matchup uh, like Gasol on Trey Young, or it's defending someone who's just going nuclear and you would rather anybody else attack, even if they're able to attack four and three. So the predictability of it is really what hurts you because then they know they're going to get a prolonged exactly. four and three. And as long as they're organized, that's super easy to game plan against. And it's not, not going to be successful. That is why we don't see NBA teams use it a bunch. Even college teams, the highest rate of double teams on the college end, and this is using synergy data, not second spectrum data, is VCU at like 40%. And they do well. Other than they're, them, there's really, there isn't really yeah. much. Yeah, and, and that's their whole persona. That is everything they do. They run a, a deep rotation. They're always sprinting around. It's yeah. all defense all the time, high pressure. And even then, they're not generating like a ton of runouts from it. So the, the turnover piece of it is comparable, but it is easier to just kind of recover as a defense. You, you still give up that, that temporary four on three in a catch hedge, but it's easier to recover to. Or if there's a skip pass, everybody knows where they're supposed to go in a catch hedge situation, whereas double yeah. teaming, it makes it a little bit tougher to recover if the ball does get out. And another thing chaotic, about it is yeah. exactly in, in when you are sending your big man higher up on the court from, from a drop coverage, they're not going to get beat in drop coverage getting to the rim. If you start catch hedging, they're going to get beat a little bit more often. Uh, if if you are a quick ball handler and you can split that or you can get around the corner, you flip that ball screen, because they're higher up, you, they're more vulnerable to those ball, ball handlers getting to the rim. When you double team, it's even more so. If you split that or flip that, it's really easy to to get some of those things. And it's not going to happen a ton, but you're more vulnerable. And that is another reason why teams don't do it as much. And because instead of having that big man be set in, in a good defensive stance, they're going out towards the ball handler. You also see much, much higher foul rates for big men in that type of scheme. Mm. And when you have a really thin big man rotation like the Lakers, that can be really troublesome. So similar efficiency, similar turnover rates. It's easier to recover to. It's easier from a game planning standpoint for the Lakers to uh, counter what teams might be doing against them. And I don't know. I think the fact that like the idea, I get the idea that I think the, the, the idea is well-intentioned and like, Hey, this could work, but the Lakers are executing well. Their pick and roll defense has been very good. Their defense overall in this year has been very good. And it's been because they're both containing that player while also being able to recover off ball. If you start double teaming, you're going to have really good pick and roll ball handler defensive numbers, but it's the rest of those, those pass outs that they're going to kill you with. So I don't think you can do it in a predictable way. I think occasionally along like the sidelines, maybe have that man show really hard, get them to pick up the the ball. But especially on middle ball screens, I don't think I would be double teaming except for in very specific circumstances or like a curveball every now and then maybe out of a timeout or something like that. Because it's just not a sustainable form of defense. And you don't need to trust me. Just go look at who doesn't, who doesn't do it. And there just are very, very few teams if any, on the college level that do it in no NBA teams that are using uh, d traps more than like 10% of the time. 
so some more interesting context here, just on the Lakers overall pick and roll defense. Per synergy, they're fifth in the league at defending the pick and roll ball handler, giving up 0.836 points per possession. And as the pick and roll roll man, they are fifth in the league, 0.965. So they're they're doing well in this area of the court. And Tim, I just want to highlight something else that you said again, is that when it's predictable and a a baseline you know, strategy, it is so easy to give the player an outlet, a safety outlet. And part of the issue is that it's not Dwight Howard, who's seven feet tall and and bulky and huge shouldered. It's Montrez Harrell, who's a little bit undersized, who, you know, Jason put into this equation. And Mark Gasol, who's, you know, big, but more of a, a skilled, you know, finesse defender than a than a can swallow you up you know, over the top kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And we saw one of these plays actually in that last Thunder game where Hamadou Diallo got blitzed uh, and Mark Gasol got nutmegged. And now Horford just just hit a little baby hook you know, over nobody. So to your point, it's high risk, high reward. The Lakers aren't in a position where they have to play high risk anything because their base defense is strong and you know you mix it in here and there and from what i saw the only intentional traps that really came were against steph curry in the golden state game Mm -hmm. and every other every other one was tim a lot of it was the spurs attacking this coverage in really smart ways and they've really hurt us and forced our catch hedges and to become blitzes when we didn't want them to they would just peel a guy off you know you you do a side pick and roll let's say going to the left right and then you peel the guy that was on the like the right wing up to the top of the key and they're ready for your blitz they know it's coming and, you know, they just wheel that off and, and he throws it to the inside to the roll man. And it's it's just a lot easier to break down that defense. And I didn't even think about the foul rates. I think that's a great point, too, that the bigs recovering, trying to close angles and stay out of the restricted area and get a lot of blocking fouls. That makes sense to me. But I do like the idea of trapping against certain players, but not really as a base and I guess the, to the point of Gasol and Trez specifically not looking like they're contributing much, I think that's okay. If it's not loud, it doesn't mean it's bad per se, yeah. right? Yeah, they're not going to get blocks. They're not going to be getting a bunch of steals, but they're stopping the drive. And that's their job. Their job is to stop the drive without fouling and then go recover. And I I mean, some of the best pick and roll defense is – run that catch hedge. They've got nothing out of it. They kick it out. You recover to the skip pass and then nothing happens. And then they have to go ISO or something. That is good pick and roll defense. It doesn't have to be a highlight block or a steal and a run out. Like just on a, you have to be comfortable like taking those victories in that way. And this defense allows you to do that. And like, if we weren't performing well, if it wasn't working, then yeah, I'd say, Hey, you know what? Like this isn't a drop coverage team. We're not doing well in the catch hedges. Maybe we have to do this, but that is more a desperation move than something you just do just to do it. I think it's a a curveball to throw in here and there against specific players or, you know, one possession or a couple possessions a game to try to force some turnovers. But I don't know. It's it's not the type of thing teams do in general, and I don't think we of of most teams from a personnel standpoint and based on the success we've had already would really need to do it. Because it's as simple as like if if I know the other team's double teaming, I'm going to have my guy slip 
because when you're double teaming, that big man has to really step out. He's not waiting for you to come yeah. off the screen to then come up. So slip that screen. Like you said, lift someone, lift another guard up, and the ball handler doesn't need to hit the roll man. He just has to pass it to the next perimeter player who then has a better yep. angle to attack four and three and get it to that roll man. So it's very beatable if you know what's coming. That's the big thing. So it's – it's. Yeah. I, I, I get what he's saying. And like, if you take specific screenshots, there will be times where it's like, hey, it looks like Trez is in no man's land. And there's a four and three weak side, but that's just part of the scheme. The scheme. And as long as it's working, I'm I'm comfortable with it. Absolutely, Tim. So thank you for the question, Jason. We appreciate it. Hopefully that, uh, you know, you don't have to agree with us. Last devil's advocate thing I'll say, Tim, is that you downplayed a little bit the difference between 13% and 10%. Like 30% more turnovers is not nothing right it is like to his point is what he's trying to argue right i'm just trying to give his side the fair shake and and just let's move on from here Thir the difference between 13 percent and 10 percent, i think might be bigger if it were literally every possession i don't know that it is three percent difference but I think where he's coming from is that is a significant kind of increase in in aggressiveness that could lead to potential buckets. And you know what I mean? Yeah. That's I don't it, know. Yeah, no, no, no. You're right. A three percent increase of 10 percent is is fairly substantial. Yes. But it's if it yes. were from 10 to 30 or 10 to 25, I'd say, yeah, it, like there's a, some difference there. Big picture looking at the effectiveness data on a second spectrum level, catch hedging in in blitzes are about just as effective actually catch edges are a little bit more efficient for the defense and but the difference is one of them is scalable and the other one is not that is exactly. that's how i would look that's, at it yes that's a great great way to close that out uh so tim we're running a little long i'm gonna try and get through these a little quicker and kick them to you on rotation this name bartaz jambrosiak i'm so sorry do you think vogel will shorten rotation again once ad and ac will be healthy i personally don't I think they got their nine man rotation experiment a good, you know, two week sample and now they're going to just maintain guys. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it'll be uh, more guys. I think we're, I think we're going to see 10 or 11. Yeah. If Keith plays like uh, my th take on Keith is he's doing a lot of the right things and him looking good or him looking bad has come down to like him hitting the one or two catch and shoot threes he's getting a game. Uh, mm -hmm. it, He's doing a lot of the right things. We saw him in that last game. He had a really clutch three and then take a charge on the very next play. He's doing a lot of of what we want from a behavior standpoint, and I think the results are, are they'll be there. So I don't feel as though we need to cut anybody out. I think allow having a ten or eleven man rotation or figuring out something where you're getting all eleven guys playing in in maybe not all in the same game, but keeping everybody engaged and keeping everybody motivated is the right way to go. I wouldn't cut Wes and Keith out unless you feel as though they're just not performing up to the standards for the team, especially with a team coming out coming off of three overtime games in a row, like give LeBron yeah. some, some rest, notch, take his, his minutes down a notch. The team's record is still very good. We're performing well. I don't see a point in shortening the rotation this early in the season just to shorten the rotation. Yeah, check back in game 50, and I think we might, you know, 55, 60, somewhere around there, have a different equation as they kind of lock in for the playoffs. But as of now, I prefer them to take that cautious approach with Anthony Davis, Caruso, and anybody else who's got some nagging injuries just to, to not push it too hard.
All right. So next we have Jao Lima. How concerned are you with our rim protection at this moment? And there's been a lot made of this. Tim is, you know, clearly moving from JaVale McGee to Dwight Howard to Trez and Gasol. Can't talk. Would be a, a big impediment to the Lakers rim defense. So for cleaning the glass, they're giving up the same percentage of shots at the rim as they did last year, Tim. And they're th- better and effective field goal percentage overall. So what, what do you think about their rim protection so far this season? So to answer the question at the moment, I'm a little bit more concerned because we've got AD out. Once he's back, big picture sure. to answer your question, I'm okay with with how the Lakers are defending the rim. It's not flashy. We're not getting crazy highlight blocks. It's a different style of rim protection. And this goes back to the catch hedging. It's about stopping guys from getting to the rim to start with whenever you can. And in ball screens, that's easier than in some other things where guys are just going to drive. And then there will be times where we do need to defend the rim and not have those shot blockers. So it, it does hurt. It's not, I'm not trying to say that it won't hurt, but LA has done what they can to mitigate the step back that, that our uh, step back in interior defense has had on the results of the team's defense and the more that we see Coos and THT and Wes Matthews, all these guys providing pretty good help rim pre, uh, protection, um, I, the, the better I feel. Because we know LeBron can do it. We know AD when he's playing is very, very good at that. We know Trez is very good at that as, as like the off ball big coming in to help. We have a lot of guys that take charges, which is really helpful from LeBron to Caruso to Montrez Harrell to Wes Matthews. So LA is doing, they're defending the rim in different ways. And it's when fully healthy at a good enough rate that I feel okay with it. And I'm not like, man, we need to trade for somebody or change our defensive. So wrapping this other question into that, Tim, uh, I'm going to kind of combine a couple of questions here with people asking about buyout market options and whether or not we should be concerned with our center depth, given how Gasol's in foul trouble and Trez is being undersized is the question. So to clarify, the Lakers are giving up a little bit like worse, you know, the offense is shooting better at the rim against the Lakers than they were last season, but their defense overall is slightly better. So it's, it's worse, but it's not so much worse that it it's tanking the whole defense at, at least to this point, Tim. So with that in mind, they can get marginally better. And I don't, I honestly can't think of many buyout bigs off the top of my head. I, I don't think anyone like Drummond or someone on the higher end is going to want to come here because honestly, the Lakers still don't have that much playing time. And it's going to be really hard to imagine somebody coming in and playing more crunch time minutes than Gasol, Trez, or Keith because that's not really how the Lakers run their organization. Yeah. Um, and I don't bring even know guys in last minute. Yeah. No, and you're right. The minutes aren't really there, and I don't even know if a guy like Drummond might get out. Let me throw some names at you right. that are, are for players who I think might get uh, bought out, and you let me know which one of these guys is your your rim protection savior. Cody Zeller, Robin Lopez, Bismack Biombo, Mike Muscala, Cristiano Felicio, Ed Davis, JaVale McGee. That's that's who I'm, I, I scoured the internet, looked at articles, and tried to find who people think might get bought out, and those are the names I found. And I think we can't even sign JaVale, right? Oh, that's for, right. For yeah, a whole season so unless he, he been, changes teams again. Yeah, because he would have been the best room protector on that list to go after. So, eh, yeah. 
like de dead men. And the other issue is that they're hard capped, right? So they can't even sign somebody until like, I, I don't even know if they have enough under the cap to sign somebody at the day of the buyout deadline to be eligible for the playoffs. I, I think they do, but it's yeah for the, the money and the, the opportunity, I'm not expecting a, any tier level player worthy of uh, joining this team yet. I just don't think they're going to be in it. I don't expect LA to like, we might go try to get someone from the bio market, but it's, I have low hopes for the impact, the role that player would have on this team. The minutes like, Unless somebody goes down for injury, unless like Gasol or AD go down with an injury, I or Harrell, they're not going to be playing all that much. And we, with the guys we have already, I think in the scheme we're running has shown that once we translate to the playoffs, like Trez should be able to keep playing in a catch-edge scheme because he's doing well with it. Gasol should be able to keep playing. Um, and I, yeah, so I don't, I don't have high hopes. The caliber of guys available is going to be low, and the opportunity is going to be low. So it's a very marginal change if any and and like we mentioned the la may be limited from a financial standpoint or even some of the rules against signing like javel in terms of who they can even bring in the door all right Ronaldo, almanza and lamar ask about trade value and the possibility of the lakers moving tht coos and caruso since la likely can't afford to keep everyone long term um i wouldn't say that they can't keep everybody long term it's partly a question of are these guys willing to accept the most amount of money the Lakers can offer them under their, their conditions, right? So I think I saw THT can get like a $20 million contract for two years, something like that. If, if that's a sacrifice for him to be on a championship team in LA and the Lakers will foot the luxury tax bill. So it's not impossible that they keep everyone per se. It's just an expensive proposition. So is it worth messing with that championship chemistry, Tim? I don't know. I don't think so. Given what we've seen the Lakers do so far, how they've performed, I am not in like, hey, we need to make a huge change, sort of. Again, I don't think they can trade Kuzma for uh, a year to his extension. And I don't think they would trade THT or Carusa for anybody that's not like Bradley Beal. And frankly, that's not happening. So, you know, I I just don't see the kind of impetus for them to mess with this chemistry that they have yeah I, I agree with you i think at this point in time given who we have our financial and, and cap situation everything we're probably just going to be running with this group and i feel pretty good about this group going into the playoffs and there are things we could do here and there to improve on the margins and be in better form once we get there but i think this is the right coaching staff and the right group of players to be able to make a good run and finally, from Anthony Neal, we have an overall question about do we eventually see the full potential of this team before the playoffs or perhaps are we rele relegated to them playing up or down to their competition? And I think this will be just like every other LeBron season, Tim, where there's a stretch like the Lakers had last season before the stoppage where they'll beat two really good teams at a weekend and it'll be convincing and it won't look like terrible overtime Oklahoma City games. And the Lakers will, you know, walk into the playoffs more or less the favorite, to, you know, barring injuries. Because, yeah, that's just kind of what LeBron teams do. And that's that's my analysis. <laughs> that I mean, that's good analysis. It's simple, but it's good. And we've seen this story before. We saw it last year. We've seen it with other LeBron teams. They're going to do what they can to peak at the right time as long as guys are healthy and 
you know, we've plenty of time left in the season for them to experiment, try stuff out, figure out what works and improve here. They're offensively, uh, defensively, they're in pretty good shape, but offensively to, to find little ways to be a little bit more efficient and you got use guys better and all those sorts of different things. We haven't seen the peak of this team yet, but it's too early in the season that we should be seeing them peak. This recent stretch is probably like on the low end of how they can be performing. I mean, other than, you know, they haven't lost the games, but it has not looked good. If you were to look at like right. this stretch, this, this what, five, six game win streak and say like, all right, what if for a team to be to have like this, you know, uh, what, what I don't know what our total point margin is against those teams in those five games but if you were to say all right if if a random team is to play these five or six teams and have a plus six point margin how good do we expect them to be it's not first in the league um so this isn't the you know the best form of the lakers plenty of time left guys are injured i i think we'll see them like you said kind of showcase what they can be and then people are like oh all right now i see it now the lakers are here um it may not happen soon there's plenty of season left but I think we're going to get to see it before the playoffs a little bit, um, though. And I think more so than last year, we might see this team look like what they look like in the playoffs from a rotation standpoint, too. Uh, we've already seen them try out shortening the rotation, and we may see them do it again later in the year. And the fact that we don't have a starting center that suddenly is going to go away, or at least that's not what I'm anticipating. I think you can look at this team if they are performing well and be like, yeah. That translates. The defensive scheme, that translates. The offensive scheme, what they're doing, how they're running things, that should translate. So I, we're going to see them peak at some point. And when they do peak, it's going to look pretty legit. It's not going to be like, all right, well, this is good, but JaVale McGee had 12 points and he's not going to be able to play on the court, stay on the court and all that sort of stuff. No, I think that's, that's really spot on. And the Lakers, like, they're going to... If this is the worst that they look all season, this is a damn good team, right? And we don't know that until the full season plays out. But, you know, usually around January, it feels like there's that dip in, in good teams and LeBron teams. And he has a consistent rhythm to his, his seasons. And uh, this is just don't get hurt mode. You know, win, win as many games as you can without killing yourself. But uh, surprisingly, this... Pandemic hasn't affected the rhythms of this season for the Lakers the way it is uh, a lot of teams. You know, I'm still thankful they haven't had any major outbreaks or you know complications from this this pandemic. So, in that sense, like they're they're doing everything that they can. You know, from the outside looking in to just play it like any other season and um and and keep their head down. <laughs> And get bored from time to time, but they know when to lock in and when to uh, just kind of coast. And I think it's hashtag Soko in the chat. Uh, here, here's a quote from this is a uh, Dennis Reynolds quote with with a NBA twist to it. Let me tell you something. I haven't even begun to peak. And when I do peak, <laughs> you'll know because I'm going to peak so hard that everyone in the league is going to feel it. That I, I That's so true. That is like when the Lakers are peaking, it's going to look so damn good because they are better than they were last year. They have better. They're running better schemes. They have better players. The coaching staff has gotten a little bit better and it's going to translate to the playoffs better. So when this team is kicking butt at some point later in this year and they beat two elite teams in, in like three or four days it's teams that people are going to feel it. We're going to see a lot of people talking about it on Twitter and it's going to feel really, really good. I love that. No better way to close out the mailbag show than with that quote. So again, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we will be back soon 
probably Monday with another pod. And we will talk to you guys next time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.